Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you'll find us here at prn.fm, the Progressive Radio Network, every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern U.S. time. But since we're global, it could be any time in your part of the world. And you'll find our back shows at visionaries.podbean.com. Today I want to talk about movies. So we are in uh, the times of COVID. PRN has beautiful studios right in Midtown, New York, where I have not been in months. Uh, so I record my show on my laptop. Pardon the, <laughs> pardon the quality and my raspy voice. Um, and then email them to uh, the engineers and get them out. They then get them out to you and on Podbean. So, miracle of modern technology. Who knew your dining room table could be a radio studio or a movie studio? <laughs> My brother-in-law does filming from home now, editing and making composites and all that. So... In these days of COVID, one of the things I've been able to do is get out some books. I have a new book out on the architect Louis Kahn called Louis Kahn, Architecture as Philosophy. So that's with Monticelli Press, major book, major press, just came out a couple months ago. And you'll find it on Amazon. I'll talk about it sometime. And it's about architecture, but, you know, if you really get into architecture, uh, it's, I think, of broad general interest. <clears throat> the definition I give my students of architecture is, architecture is the manifestation of a culture in form. So, looking at architecture, you're looking at a culture. And some architecture is superficial. Same thing about literature. Some of it is just uh, thrillers, although thrillers can be great literature. And some of it's serious literature. And I also did a book called Notes on Architecture. And that's a collection of my writing over the past 50 years. I studied at the University of Pennsylvania and did a written thesis for my second master's degree. And that's another book. Uh, the thesis was on architecture and structures of consciousness. So I published that <coughs> along with my notes uh, about it, attempts at uh, rewriting and some appendices bringing the material up to date. Published that, <coughs> excuse me, in a book called 
Architecture and Structures of Consciousness. You'll find that on Amazon. And that got me into writing uh, as I was finishing that. Robert Venturi, who just died a couple of years ago, uh, published his book, Complexity and Contradiction in Architecture, and got me galleys of the book, that's uh, layouts of the book before it comes out. And so I was able to review that, came out in Arts Magazine, where I became the architectural contributor. And that got me into more writing, and I collected all that writing that I've been doing over the past 50 years in a book called Notes on Architecture. And you'll find that on Amazon. Now, which led me to something interesting that's been bugging me ever since the inception of the uh, Internet. I have kept more stuff than I should, both books and papers. Papers starts on books, manuscripts, articles starts on articles that never got published. And they're all in filing cabinets, which I can't get to because <coughs> there's other stuff piled in front of them. But I made a point with my writing that uh, I Xeroxed everything. <coughs> and either the uh, original clipping or a Xerox is in a three-ring binder, which I can't find. Now, most of it's online. So some of the magazines... I published for, or published in, have all their back issues online. A lot of it's not. So where do I go look for that? A couple of things, like I had an article in Smithsonian. Uh, I took all of Lewis Mumford's books and put them on a shelf and then uh, read through them. I didn't necessarily read all of all of them. I had read some of them previously, on the occasion of a memoir he wrote, and uh, in reviewing the memoir, referred to the previous books. Well, couldn't find that, so I was able to get that issue of Smithsonian Magazine on eBay. There's one magazine called Skyline, really great magazine in its day. So I'm getting to a point here, but I like to work through digression. So Skyline was edited by a guy named Andrew McNair. And Andrew associated with the Institute for Architecture and Urban Studies, EOS, founded by and run by Peter Eisenman. And they also did a very fancy journal an academic theoretical journal. So Peter observed that other countries, particularly Italy, were into architectural theory, and in the United States we were not. We just had professional magazines. And he pretty much launched the field of architectural theory in the United States with this institute, which had um, a journal, oppositions, lecture series, courses, and a exhibits, 
And then a monthly journal uh, or tabloid, really, called Skyline, much more popular. And I had the great opportunity to write for that. I wrote uh, maybe about four pieces over the years. And I couldn't find those. So I had a couple of them. If you go to johnlabelle.com, you'll find a lot of my articles scanned in PDF. But there are a couple of from Skyline I couldn't find. I finally found Andrew. <laughs> he didn't have them. Or if he does, they're packed up. But he recommended a used bookstore in San Francisco. So they got me one of them, Key One. So I'm pretty much all set. I've got the... There's one I don't have, but I have the, the two I really wanted. But it led me to think about something, which is how ephemeral our information has become. You know, we have... Uh, they have to brag about more data is, is created and stored every six months than the previous history of the world, um, including the previous six months. And I'm not sure how reliable that storage is. It's something I recall some years ago on C-SPAN. People from the Library of Congress were talking about this. And, you know, uh, app, I, I'm a Mac person, first person in my school to get a Mac. And I got my first Mac in the first 100 days. Unfortunately, I don't still have it. It might be valuable, uh, although I, I upgraded it so that undermined the value. But anyway, uh, Mac automatically backs me up to the iCloud, so that's great. I've sort of let my, my uh, Carbonite account elapse because the Mac iCloud does the same thing. And I periodically, you know, maybe once a month, use Apple's Time Machine to back up to a remote hard disk. But that's of limited value because it's in my apartment. You want to have remote backup. And... I'm always bugging my students who walk around with their laptops, you know, in a backpack. I say, how many people your laptop is backed up remotely? And almost none of them. It's like, I don't know what the latest is, but you know, $50 a year to, uh, and what Carbonite does and iCloud does is it continually backs you up. You do something, as long as you're on the internet, you back, it backs up immediately. If you're not on the internet, it backs it up the next time you are. So it's totally in the background. You don't have to think about it. Time Machine does the same thing, but it has to be plugged in. Since I carry my laptop around the apartment, <laughs> I'm not going anywhere, uh, I still have to deliberately occasionally plug it in. But anyway, years ago, Apple had another service like this iCloud. Uh, not as much capacity. It was sort of, you know, you put something there if you want to use it uh, for a presentation when you get somewhere else, or you could give somebody, the, you could put it in a public folder and someone else could pick it up like Dropbox. But the point is they shut it down. And they send out notices, you know, in two months we're shutting it down, get your stuff. 
I couldn't get my stuff. There's nothing important there. Everything there I had elsewhere. But what is that? You know, it's like uh, my mini storage has been good for 20 years. Um, I don't send me a notice saying move everything out. Uh, my file cabinets are still there. I have my stuff from 50 years ago. And there are books I read 50, 60 years ago. And I can go to that book and I have a kind of visceral memory. I don't remember the exact quote or exact page. But I was like three quarters of the way through the book on the upper third of the page on the right-hand side. And I can go find something I read uh, 60 years ago if I want to put it in something I'm writing. Well, now I listen to books. I, I read very little. And books on audio are great, but I don't remember them the same way. I remember all the impressions, but I don't remember which book it came from. Like, for example, uh, the big tech companies, Apple, Google, Microsoft, Facebook. Um, they're tech companies, except Apple's not really a tech company. It's a luxury brand. And that has a lot to do with how it's perceived, how it's used, and the value of its stock. Luxury brands are valued much higher than tech brands. Well, where did I read that? I have about five books that talk about those companies and what's going on in tech. And I don't remember which one or ones that was in. So that's kind of annoying about our world today. But anyway, with this occasion, I could publish all these books. I did a book on movies. You'll find it on Amazon. Movies, Myths, and Archetypes by John LaBelle. Published by JXJ Publications. Available on Amazon. Now, this is a collection of my movie reviews from the past um, uh, 20, 30 years. Some further, some go back 60 years. But what happened was, as the internet was starting, and even before the web, the internet was there, and there were programs that would create communities. There was a woman who created a discussion community, and it was rather awkward software, but she was a, a pioneer. She got interviewed on the radio. I joined her network at the time. I think AOL hadn't even really started, and AOL didn't give you your own pages. You could put up a, you know, a profile, there were chat rooms, uh, you could message somebody individually. AOL had pretty much the whole thing and then blew it. Steve Case wrote a book about what happened and 
I read the book because, you know, what happened? AOL could have been Google, Facebook, certainly could have been Facebook, and it probably could have been the others. But if we're students of Clayton Christensen, we know why that can't be. Um, companies don't innovate into new fields. They do one thing, and then they die when someone else comes along. Occasionally they can innovate, but not very often. But anyway, I, I wanted to, I, her uh, platform was so awkward, I ended up not really using the site, but I wanted to do something. And what I wanted to do was the following. Suppose you wanted to discuss movies intelligently. And at the time, I had done a review of In the Line of Fire with Clint Eastwood. In that movie, he is the only Secret Service agent still working who had ever lost the president. He was on the bumper of JFK's, John F. Kennedy's car, and failed to jump to take the second bullet. He froze. And so now he's in the wasteland. He's working counterfeiting. And he's not happy. And there's a threat by John Malkovich, the bad guy, on the current president. And the bad guy contacts the Clint Eastwood Secret Service guy. So he's now back uh, on top of the heap, running the efforts to track this guy down and protect the president because he's been contacted. So he's got special access. Well, turns out that John Malkovich's character is a CIA assassin who they decided to terminate. <laughs> but they can't get him because he's really good. So he's going to go out. But, well, he's been an admirer of the Clint Eastwood character. And he says, I'm going to give you a chance to get me and save the president, and you'll have redeemed yourself, which is what happens. Well, this is the story of Parseval, one of the knights of King Arthur's Roundtable. And the movie is a very direct rendition of the Parseval myth into a movie. There are a lot of other examples of this. Uh, the hero who fails, is in the wasteland, and gets a chance at redemption and succeeds. Uh, you could probably think of a dozen movies. So I wanted to write about this. I said, you know, people making these movies are really intelligent, some of them, and whether it's by natural artistic instinct or literary awareness, they're putting these deep ideas in their movies. Nobody's talking about it. It's not something movie reviewers do. Now, uh, you couldn't pub 
found a magazine to do this because it wouldn't have enough circulation. But with the internet, even if there's only a thousand people in the entire world, if we could find those thousand people, we could have a very rich site. These people could meet, interact, and contribute reviews on this level. Well, I couldn't get anybody to be interested. And there was a guy who had a course on movies, very famous. I think he still does it. And you sign up for this course, it's expensive. But what happens is, every week, you meet, he did it for a while at NYU, he did it at the New School. Uh, every week, you'd go to the big theater at the school and see, a week or two before its release, a top-of-the-run movie by a major star director. And then he would interview that star director live on the stage. So this is really cool. So I approached him and said, you've got a following. Let's do this. He said, no, you do it. So didn't happen. Well, years later, I encountered a guy named John David Ebert. And he had just started working for the Joseph Campbell Foundation that I, with which I was involved. And he gave a lecture at the foundation on the a tie between <coughs> Francis Ford Coppola's Apocalypse Now and uh, the books Myth to Ritual, um, the Golden Bough, and the, the TSA, it's the Wasteland. And I said, wow, this is a guy thinking about movies exactly like I wanted to do. So Ebert and I founded a website, cinemadiscourse.com, still there. And you'll find some of our back stuff there. We haven't been doing much recently. But Ebert took his reviews down to put them in a book, but there's some essays there. And I put my essays in my book, Movies, Myths, and Archetypes, which you can find on Amazon. So when I was in college, when I was in junior high and high school, it was a real low period in American uh, movies. It was a time of Jack Lemmon's Under the Yum Yum Tree. I mean, movies were really stupid. Remember sitting through Alexander the Great with Elizabeth, Elizabeth Taylor's many-time husband, great actor, what's his name? Anyway, it was an intelligent movie. I mean, it was an action cinemascope movie, but there was real dialogue in there. I didn't know what, a, what it was that was attracting me, but it was just interesting. So anyway, finally, my freshman year of college, something happened. Dolce Vita, Breathless, 
and Laventure. <coughs> oh, and Igmar Bergman's Wildstrawberries. So these four movies burst on the scene. Totally changed movies forever. Of course, <coughs> I was going to school in Philadelphia where these movies did not show up. Um, there was one foreign movie theater in Philadelphia and it was perpetually tied up with the Bridget Bardot movie. So I'd come to New York every other weekend to get caught up on this stuff. But anyway, for me, with these movies, movies became literature. So, um, some of these movies ended up in my master's thesis of 1966. So I talked about um, Wells, uh, Citizen Kane, how it approached time, and then how Wild Strawberries approached time, use of the flashbacks, and how last year at Marion Bad approached time, and uh, Hiroshima among the more. So, I was interested in these movies, and they really functioned on the level of literature. But then, many years later, in the 1970s, I discovered Joseph Campbell. Now, Campbell, his books had been accumulating on the shelf of the A Street Bookstore, which was the great literary hangout of New York. I stopped being a serious scholar when the A Street Bookstore closed. I didn't get books in the library. I didn't get books. I didn't, you know, subscribe to journals. Um, I got everything I needed at the A Street Bookstore. But I couldn't penetrate Campbell. I didn't know, what is this guy about? What are these books about? Where do you start? Um, I've done a couple of shows on this, so real quick, where you start is his book called Myths to Live By. So unlike his other books, which can be a bit difficult, but eventually very rewarding, Myths to Live By is a collection of lectures he gave, mostly at Cooper Union, transcribed and edited, and a very beautiful introduction to Campbell. And then also the power of myth. So um, Bill Moyers interviews Campbell on public television. And those six shows are collected into a book called Power of Myth. And because it's on public TV, it has to be, let's just say, made accessible to all of us. So you start with those two books, and then you can get to any of the other books. But anyway. I was attending all of Campbell's lectures and starting to read his books. At the same time, I was studying Tai Chi and Taoism with Chinming Chen, Buddhism with Chigong Trumpa Rinpoche, who uh, his study center was right upstairs in the same building as uh, Campbell's, Campbell's wife, Jean Erdman, had a dance studio on the corner of, uh, 40, of 14th Street and 5th Avenue, a loft, and that's where 
Um, Campbell did his lectures and also for a while where Le Boucher's Buddhist Center was. So I started becoming seeped in this mythological material. And I could now see movies mythologically. I had a partner, Ebert, who saw them the same way. And we did a good job of keeping cinema discourse fresh. And we were getting like a thousand visitors a day, a thousand unique visits. So that was very rewarding. But, uh, and we got some good feedback through the comment section. But eventually we, uh, we lost interest. Apologies for those people who did contribute. Thank you. Um, but the materials now in our books, you can look up Ebert's. But what do I have in movies, myths, and archetypes? So what I did was I wrote an extensive introduction uh, presenting what I'm up to here. And then what I do is, first of all, I introduce the notion of archetypes. Now, archetypes are universal patterns which are then manifest differently in different cultures. So, um, Joseph Campbell wrote a book called The Hero with a Thousand Faces, in which he introduces this idea. So the archetypal hero journey is a dissatisfaction with one's everyday life, a call to adventure, a journey to a realm of fabulous forces, where one is assisted by hero helpers, perhaps encounters and comes to a resolution with the father, and then a return, a decisive victory is won, and then a return to enrich the world. Luke Skywalker is unhappy on the farm. Uh, the droid he bought projects the hologram. Obi-Wan, help me, Obi-Wan, help me. Could that be old Ben? He encounters the retired Jedi warrior, Obi-Wan Kenobi, who, um, with whom he teams up. They take off on the Millennium Falcon to a realm of fabulous space technology where he is helped by uh, the two robots and the hero helpers eventually comes to resolution with his father, Darth Vader, and returns to enrich the world, destroys the Death Star, and enriches the world. Oh, and by the way, has a twin, which is often the case. Anyway, I explain how an archetypal pattern is played out in the movie Phantom of the Opera. So, you might say that a young woman coming of age has to resolve um, a relationship with three male figures. A father, who is her mentor and teacher, but from whom she then has to separate to go on and be independently on her own. The 
uh, demon lover who uh, brings her into, opens up for her art, transcendent world, and eroticism, and a husband lover who makes available to her a settled life with happiness and family. Now, how to balance those three things? Because there's contradictions. The father may not want the daughter to ever leave. So that's uh, Washington Square. Uh, I guess the movie's called Washington Square by is it William James, in which she never separates from her father. The um, inability to resolve between the husband and the bad boy lover that leads to the destruction of Anna Karenina. So you can find dozens of books about the woman trying to negotiate these three male figures who <laughs> can actually, uh, since uh, men have immature egos, can get into uh, conflict with each other, not to mention with her. Well, what made, the movie did okay, but the theatrical phantom of the opera is the most successful financially piece of entertainment of all time, <clears throat> still running around the world. And beautiful musical in lots of ways, but it played out the story in which the heroine successfully negotiates this relationship. She makes all of it work. And <clears throat> at her death of <clears throat> old age after a long, happy life, her husband goes to the opera, which is being closed down and they're auctioning everything off. And he buys a little toy that had been the favorite toy of the phantom who had grown up in the basement of the opera and brings it to her grave uh, to say you can still be with him. And when he gets there, there's a rose <clears throat> because the phantom has also left his sign. So the, all three of them have <clears throat> resolved in their relationship. So that's... Uh, my contention is you can't review that movie until you explain what it's about. And that's what it's about. It's about a woman dealing with the conflict of, as she matures, these three uh, archetypal male figures. And then, you know, the staging, the script, the dialogue, the costumes. Now we can talk about all that. So that's my first review in the book to establish that approach. And then, and if you're interested in any of these movies, <clears throat> you'll want to read my reviews. And if you don't want to get the book, if you search cinemadiscourse.com and then search on, uh, <coughs> excuse me, Search on these titles, you should find my reviews. Then the hero journey. So I just described the hero journey. Uh, 
Star Trek. Oh, I don't have Star Wars here. That's too obvious. Star Trek, Apocalypse Now, and Tron Legacy. Now, Tron Legacy is interesting because it goes through all the steps. So we have our young hero. He's kind of um, uh, drifting. He's not taking the family business of video games seriously. His father has disappeared. Of course, he's stuck in a video game. And he goes to uh, an old uh, building, and he goes down to the basement. So that's down to the underworld. There's a recent Alice in Wonderland, which he goes down the rabbit hole uh, into the underworld. Now, what should happen there? This is we. There should be a series of flaws, both mostly based on immaturity of the protagonist. And a protagonist will have a series of encounters in the underworld, with in which by completing these um, challenges, will mature, will flesh out each of these immaturities and bring them to maturity so that when he or she comes up from the rabbit hole uh, will now be a whole person able to carry on maturely a fulfilling and contributing life in this world. That's the structure. Well, Tron knows that but doesn't do it. Uh, one of them is resolution with the father. Well, in Tron they're buddies to begin with, they're buddies and face the bad guy together. There's no conflict to resolve. Cause there's, and you can tell that that was originally there, but got left out because they wanted extra motorcycle chases. This is cool motorcycles. So that's a movie that follows the structure but doesn't do it well. So I talk about how it should be done. And then mean streets. So there's a famous essay by Chandler, the uh, great movie, I'm sorry, the great mystery writer. And pardon my slipping memory. Raymond Chandler, in The Simple Art of Murder, writes, Down these mean streets a man must go who is not himself mean who is neither tarnished nor afraid. He is the hero. He is everything. He must be a complete man and a common man, and yet an unusual man. He must be, to use a rather weather-worn phrase, a man of honor, by instinct, by inevitability, without thought about it, and certainly without saying it. He must be the best man in his world and a good enough man for any world. So... Down these mean streets a man must go. And then a thousand movie, movies. Law-abiding citizen Harry Brown wanted The Hunger Games, The Chronicles of Riddick. Riddick. Two Riddick movies. Um, the second and third. So every one of these movies uh, is that pattern, that archetype. So... That's kind of influential on me. We didn't have a TV 
until I was in junior high school. And my mother later told me, we weren't going to get a TV until you'd read a book on your own. Well, I started reading. Uh, there were three, three things that got me into reading. Um, Tarzan, who totally fits this Mean Street hero. Sherlock Holmes, who's the intellectual version thereof. And Mickey Spillane, uh, his detective is Mike Hammer. I think there's about nine Mike Hammer books. So I just plowed through all of those. I mean, I just read every one of them. There are 22 Tarzan books, only 11 in print, and I read every one of them, had to buy them. They made a point of not having them in the library. It was considered trash. A lot of other stuff you could consider trash in the library, but they picked on Tarzan. And Tarzan is, um, you know, a broad enough idea that they still make Tarzan movies to this day. Of course, the original movies were Me, Tarzan, You, Jane. But in the books, he's a very sophisticated and wealthy English lord. And so there's a lot of material to deal with there between his uh, civilized self and his jungle self, shall we say. Anyway, that's a, um, another category. We're going to wrap up shortly. I was going to talk about some of these movies, but maybe in another show. Promethean Visions. So, Prometheus is the titan sort of a god, who <clears throat> many versions, but sort of creates humans, molds us from clay, that kind of thing, and later steals not only fire, but the arts and sciences from the gods, and brings to humankind. And Jupiter, um, or yeah, Jupiter in the Roman version, or Zeus in the Greek, freaks out. You idiot! You know what they're going to do with that stuff? They're going to overthrow us! And punishes Prometheus by chaining him to a rock. An eagle comes every day and eats out his liver, which regrows every night. And um, there's the uh, Prometheus Bound we have by which of the tragedians? Um, anyway, hang on. No, well, anyway, um, Prometheus shows up as. In Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, or the modern Prometheus. So Prometheus is when we humans have the hubris to take on the godlike power of creating new worlds, new life. 
And do we get away with it or do we get in trouble? So in the Bible, recall why does God throw Adam and Eve out of the Garden of Eden? It's not the punishment for eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's for fear that they will eat of the fruit of the tree of eternal life and become like us. So I've talked in the past about my work on a project called Timeship Cryonics. We've had the uh, architect and founder of the project, Stephen Valentine, on the show. You can find an old interview with him. But uh, major theme. And what movies does this lead us to? Promethean Vision, Wolf, um, and Limitless, Splice, Skyline, Prometheus, the latest, the second to the latest alien movie, Babylon AD, Lucy, Clash of the Titans. Lucy is a such a good movie. I you know, I have to think more about why. Maybe it has a lot to do with uh, Scarlett Johansson. But I can watch that any time it comes on TV. And Babylon AD is interesting because it's a struggle between the father figure and the mother figure. Straight out of Mozart's The Magic Flute. So if you get a chance to watch that. And it's got one of my favorite actors. Um, what's his name? From uh, Chronicles of Riddick. Anyway. Uh, let's wrap up. I have a theme of time, Citizen Kane, Hiroshima Monomore, last year Marion Bad, Source Code, Midnight in Paris, total delight, wonderful Woody Allen movie. Um, for lectures on cruise ships, I did a lecture on six um, romantic movies about Venice. So I wrote those up as reviews. And then Making a Better Self, beginning with La Dolce Vita, finally writing about one of the first movies that led me into movies, and a bunch of others. Oh, Babette's Feast, you've got to read my review on that, and Groundhog Day. So let's wrap up. This is John LaBelle. You've been listening to Visionaries on the Progressive Radio Network. We're here at prn.fm every Monday at 10 a.m. Catch all of our other shows today and all day every day. And you can find this and our other back shows on visionaries.podbean.com. John LaBelle saying, see you next week.